You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. Let's take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 today. We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 and Psalm 51, and we're going to do it in 27 minutes. So if you will, please stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's Word. I'm going to read to you the first five verses of a very familiar story, a story that should break our hearts, a story that should open our eyes. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened <laughs> late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and then she returned to her house, and The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Let's pray. Lord, David was a man after your own heart. And here we see him give in to the desires of the flesh. Lord, uh, as we look at this passage today, it's easy to set in judgment of David, but I pray, God, that you will set in judgment of us. That you will show us, Lord, the sins of our own heart. And God save us from those sins. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The French philosopher and polymath Pascal, he said this. He said, sin is licking the earth. I read that this week and it, it settled heavy on me. What a vivid description of what it means to give in to the baseness of sin, to the filth of sin. When we read this passage, the story of David and Bathsheba, we feel like that we've entered into a 3,000-year-old soap opera. Sex, murder, and a cover-up. It's like CSI Jerusalem, right? Fascinating story, yes, but it's just nothing more complicated than a story of someone licking the earth. Indulging in sin. When I read a passage like this, obviously the sin in this story is so blatant. It's so powerful, uh, but it's not surprising. Those of us who are living in this world, and especially today when we have video images that, that come across our Facebook feed, when there are movies that are constantly showing us things like this, basic everyday TV shows showing us things like this, it's not that surprising that human beings get caught up in such things. But what I want to show you today is the most surprising element of the story is not the sex or the murder, or the cover-up, the most surprising thing in the story is the grace of God. That God still remains in the story. That, that David doesn't lose his contact with the God of heaven and earth. Let's focus on God's grace today, but let's also realize that there was a rebellion that took place in David's heart. 
all of the rebellions that we're going to read about, the rebellion of Absalom, this, those rebellions don't even hold a candle to the rebellion that took place in David's heart. Timothy George, one of the great minds, theological minds of our day, he defines sin as a seething rebellion. And what we need to realize is the problem of sin is serious and that there is no such thing as a spiritual band-aid that's going to heal our problems. The only hope we have is that we die to our sins and are raised again in Christ. There are no human solutions for sin like this. There, there are no uh, ways for us to make it up, to make amends when lives are crushed like this, like we're going to see in our text today. Yes, we're going to talk about David's sin today, but we're also going to have to look deep at our own sins. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, sin is rooted in unbelief and the failure to entrust oneself entirely to God. Let me say this. You may not be an adulterer, a murderer, and all the things we read about today in David's life, but I will say this. We are all guilty of not giving ourselves entirely unto God. Keep this thought in your mind. Keep it in your mind, and hopefully by the end of the sermon, we can bring it back around and we can think about it once more. We can see what happens when we truly confess our sins, but we have to be made aware of those sins. And that's why this text is important for us today. It will lead us in that direction. Because those sins in our hearts, we had better let God get a hold of us today. We better own up to our sins, because if we don't, our sins will own us. And I'm here to tell you, in the days that come, we cannot have Christians that are weighed down by sins, who are, are tripping up because of their iniquities. We need Christians that are freed by the blood of the Lamb and living in the power of the Spirit. Amen. And may God give us that today as we look to this text. First, let us examine the shame of sin. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 26, we see the story. Before we can understand the story, we need to understand the background, the culture of this story. We live in a different time and a different age. But this age and this time was a time of honor and shame. I, I think that one of the things we do when we come to this passage is we don't see that. And thus we, we do see the sin and we see David and his actions and we read them with our own eyes and our own context. But there's much more going on in this text. In that culture of the ancient Near East, it's true also in the modern Near East and even in the Far East today, there is a, a heavy emphasis on shame. In fact, to be shamed is worse than death itself. Many cultures of the East, they would rather die than bring shame upon themselves and upon their families. Those of you who have watched the movies from World War II about the Japanese or even going back further in history to the Samurai Code, you'll see that they would rather take their own lives than be defeated or be shamed. That's the kind of culture we're dealing with here, much different than our own today. In fact, I would say 2 Samuel 11 highlights David's shameful behavior at every point. Notice that when the army goes out in the spring of the year, David stays home. Now, it is true that David didn't need to go out and be on the front line of battle. But it seems as though the text is telling us very clearly in verses 1 and 2 that David should be with his army. He should be in a tent in the fields with his army. And instead, he stays home. This is really brought out and highlighted in chapter 11, verse 11, when, when we see 
um, this, this statement by Uriah where he brings that up. He says, listen, I'm not going to go home and enjoy time with my wife when the armies of God are out in the field living in tents. And that's really a point at David saying, you should be there too. So David is doing a shameful thing. He's staying idle, we are told. He is there in the palace. My grandmother told me that idleness is the devil's workshop. And if ever there was an illustration of that, here it is right here. In that part of the world, it's a lot more hot than it is here. And definitely more hot than it is in here right now. Um, Just the way it is, right? It's a little bit chilly in here. Hopefully that will keep you awake today. Nonetheless, it was hot. And those homes in those days, not just the palaces, but all of the homes would have had flat roofs. And during the afternoon and evening, you would go up on that flat roof and you would set to catch the breeze, as much of it as you could. That's what David was doing. That's what Bathsheba was doing. But she was not too far away, and we are told she was bathing. Some have said that Bathsheba had to know that where her her house was was in close enough proximity that David, she would have known maybe the king would see her. Some have, have, have blamed Bathsheba. I don't know that the text says that. I think that's a stretch. Is it possible? Absolutely. Because let me tell you, here's the thing. Let's not think about whether Bathsheba intended for this to happen because the text doesn't tell us this, but it is a setup. It is, it is a setup. Because the devil is a master at setting us up. Don't worry about whose motives were what. That really doesn't matter. The truth uh, is, it was a setup, and the devil had a plan. And David gave in to that plan. I know it seems that David's sin would be a secret. Later in the text, it speaks of what he did was in secret. But one of the things you need to understand here is, is that when you were a king in a palace in that day, there really weren't any secrets. All the way up into the Middle Ages, uh, when you read about kings and queens, like Queen Elizabeth, you learn about her and all the records we have from her time as Queen of England. Everybody knew everybody's business. The queen couldn't do anything that didn't spread like wildfire through the rumor mongers in the castle. It would have been the same in this day. So we hear the story here about how how David sends a servant to go and get Bathsheba to bring her in. And she is brought in. People would have known. The servants would have known what had happened. That David had taken another man's wife, brought her into his room, and it doesn't take much of an imagination to know what that was all about. David finds out that he has not gotten away with this. Bathsheba is pregnant. That was our last verse, verse 5. He knows now that he has to do something about it. So what he does is he tries to concoct a plan. He brings Uriah home from battle so that he can spend some time with his wife. But here's the thing. Uriah is no fool. I promise you that not only the people in the castle, in the palace, knew what David had done, it had probably spread around through Jerusalem. When Uriah is brought home, he has to know that this is not normal, that something is up. He isn't clueless, but I'll tell you one thing about him. Verses 6 through 13 tell us he may not have been clueless, but he wasn't playing along. David had brought him there because if Uriah had went and done what we would imagine, that he would go home to be with his wife, that it would make it look like everything was covered up. That Uriah was understanding of what was happening and everybody would maintain their honor. But the thing is, is Uriah the Hittite was a man of more honor than David of Israel. 
and he would not let David have a free pass. He simply refuses to play along. And David's shame will be known. And Uriah is willing to let that happen. And thus David is willing to let Uriah die. Only with Uriah out of the scene can David's reputation be salvaged. It's the only way. Here's what's scary. All of David's actions in chapter 11 show that he is not worried about his sin. He is only worried about his reputation. He is only worried about the shame that it brings on him and his kingdom. And so he has Uriah put on the front line of battle and he dies and the king literally seems happy. Chapter 11 verses 22 through 25. This man seems happy that another man has died. But look at verses 25 and 26. We see there that the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now chapter 12, the conviction and price of sin. Chapter 11, David is in complete control of the narrative. He has the woman and he brings her in. He is able to get Uriah put on the front line of battle and he dies. Everything that the king does seems to happen. He is in control. But I am here to tell you, when you are living in sin, whatever feeling of control you have in the moment, it is an illusion. Sin is an illusion. When we are sinning, we feel in the flesh like we're getting what we want, but what we're getting is death. And it's in chapter 12 that death comes to David. What we see here is that Nathan the prophet is given a message from the Lord to confront the king. Make no mistake, this is a bold act. Nathan confronts David in a masterful way, and he tells the story, as many of you know the story well, of a poor man and his precious lamb and a rich man who lives close by. The rich man has plenty of lambs to slaughter for a great feast, but instead of, of, of using one of his own lambs, he decides to take the little lamb of the poor man that the poor man cherishes and cherishes almost like it's his own child and has that little lamb slaughtered for their meal. Do you remember what David's profession was before he was a king? He was a shepherd. You know, sheep are, are kind of like, in this context, kind of like we would consider like, like a dog, like a pet that we, that we love and cherish. And, and in that world, they would name all of the sheep. That's why uh, the, the good shepherd knows us by name. All of that would have connected with, with that culture. This was, this was a precious, precious uh, possession of the poor man. And David gets mad. He says, well, Nathan, this is a terrible story. I can't believe this is happening in my kingdom. Such an injustice. He said, this man deserves to die. And then here are the Hebrew words that Nathan proclaims. He says, ish, aish, you are the man. And David knows that he's no longer in control. That God in heaven knows all. Here we have a man speaking truth to power. Let me say this. No matter who is in the Oval Office, we still need prophets proclaiming the power and truth of God. People who will speak truth to power no matter what. We see that in this text. So God reaches David through the power of preaching, through the power of prophecy. And look at verse 13. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
Only two words in the Hebrew here. These two words, though, are the first steps back for David and his soul. David is convicted. David confesses, and the price of sin is pronounced. David's household will be plagued by sin. We know this. It happens right away in the text. What he had done privately or had attempted to do privately, verse 12, it will be done publicly to him. The sins in the bedchamber now will be sins on the rooftop. That's what God says. And the child that Bathsheba conceived will perish. Verses 14 through 23 tell us that sad story. The death of David's child is particularly sad here. As we were studying this text this week, we were, we were talking about this. And there's just really no good explanation why the child has to die. I could stand up here and try to give you a lecture in philosophy and what good would it do. It's sad. The price of sin is always more than we can pay. But God's grace is far richer than we could ever imagine. Let me say this to you. Why did this have to happen? I I don't know. I don't have a final answer, but let me give you the best answer that, that is in the text. There is only one passage of Scripture that I know in all of of the Bible that provides this level of comfort for those who have had children and lost them. This terrible sin of David, there is only one thing that, that, that shines out of this from this terrible death of a precious child is that the Scriptures tell us, as David tells us, that, that the child cannot come back to him, but he says, I can go and be with that child. If you have ever lost a little one, hear this. God's word is saying to you that his grace is sufficient and those little ones are always safe in his arms. There is beautiful grace. Do we lament the millions of little ones who have been lost in abortion? Absolutely. But know this, as sad and tragic as that is, this passage says that they are with the Lord. That all of the evil that mankind pours out in this world, God's grace is greater There is a price for sin, but even from the sin that is mentioned here comes hope. I'm not here to leave you in this dark place. It wouldn't be right for me to leave you here in this place where sin is so prevalent, where David, his heart is so dark. Even though he has confessed, there's this cloud around him. There's this this chaos of death and destruction. Is there a way out of sin? Yes. In chapter 12, verses 24 through 25, and then we're going to springboard just for a moment into Psalm 51. I don't have time to read it, but this afternoon, after hearing this sermon, let Psalm 51 soak into your heart. But think about this. David's heartfelt confession in chapter 12, verse 13, as I said a moment ago, leads to forgiveness and grace. David isn't given a free pass out of sin. However, we see a God whose grace helps him get beyond the despair of his own sin. The last word we hear from 2 Samuel 12 is a good word, a word of hope and of the future. Solomon is born. Notice this. Solomon had another name. Solomon means peace and prosperity, but his first name that Nathan gave him was Jedidiah, a name that means loved by the Lord. Because of all the chaos, we may lose sight of the fact that God used this union between David and Bathsheba to bring Solomon, the son of promise. And Solomon was loved by the Lord. 
The prophet who pronounced judgment on the king now confirms the love of God in David's life. The same prophet who pointed the bony finger at him and said, you're the man, now says, this child is loved of God. God is amazing. He redeems us. He gives us hope even when we have failed. David had walked away from God's love for a season, but listen, God's love never left him. The only hope we have to defeat sin is to rest in the love of God. We cannot rest in the love of God until we have come clean of our sins. David confessed his sins, and because of that, he had hope. David's confession in 2 Samuel 12, 13 may have only been two words, but it was the two words that needed to be uttered. But look at Psalm 51. Technically, it's a lament, but it's a different sort of lament. Most laments in the Psalms are focused on negative outside circumstances, but when you read Psalm 51, you'll notice that this lament focuses on the negative inside circumstances that sin brings to our hearts. It's not a lament of everybody's mean to me, the world is a bad place, I feel persecuted. No, this is a lament inside of one's heart where a person says, Lord, I have sinned. Notice in verses 1 and 2, David pleads for mercy. He asks for God to blot out his sins, to wash him, to make him clean. David can make such a bold ask because he fully trusts in God's abundant mercy. He believes in the mercy and grace of God. David knows of a grace greater than all his sin. Do you? David understands there's a vast difference between him and distance between him and the Holy One of God. But he boldly approaches the Holy One of God and asks for forgiveness. When we come to the altar, we do no more and no less. When we come to the altar, the way out of sin is not a a commitment to go on the mission field, not a commitment to become a preacher, but just a commitment to own your sin and to ask God for his mercy. God can cleanse our souls and make what is dirty white as snow. Psalm 51, 7. David believes that God can transform his heart and make him a new man who can be brought near unto God. If you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, there is hope for you just as there is hope for me. There is hope for sinners. There is joy in the Lord when we confess our sins before him. It is something we need to, as Christians, if you are a believer here, you need to spend your life proclaiming the joy of salvation and forgiveness. That's why God left you here. The easiest thing in the world would have been to take you on to heaven, but he left you here to proclaim the forgiveness that you have received. God's mercy is your only way out of sin. Your sin is a destructive force that only the cross can heal. One of the disadvantages of a story like this is that many of you are saying in your mind, okay, pastor, I appreciate this story, but I'm not in a Davidic soap opera. I I don't have adultery and murder and lying like this, of this magnitude in my life. 
Let me remind you of the quote from Luther earlier. Sin is rooted in unbelief and the failure to entrust oneself entirely to God. In David's case, that led him to, as he saw on the rooftop, Bathsheba. He gave in to his desires. The sin started on the rooftop and ended in adultery and murder. I would imagine that there are some of you in this room right now, you're on the rooftop. You're looking at the sin. You are contemplating the act, whatever that act may be. And right now the Lord is speaking to you on that rooftop that there will be a consequence for your sins. But let me ask you this, because what what Luther reminds us of is that sin is just not loving God. Here's the question. It's a paraphrase of what John Owen said, but it's basically like this. If the consequences for your sins were removed, would you still refrain from the sin? We see the consequences David faced here, and, we would, and that can scare you, right? I mean, here, when I preach to you, I could scare you all I wanted to about, look what happened to David, something this bad or worse could happen to you. But here's the real question. If all the consequences were taken away, the sin that you're involved in right now, if there could be no consequences, would you still refrain from it only because of your love for Jesus? The only thing that can free you from sin is to love Jesus more. And many of us are continuing in our sin. And let me tell you what that shows. It shows that our love and affection for God is less than what we want other people to think. Don't just tell me of what you've avoided. Let me ask you this. What are you also failing to do positively? Where's your worship Where's your heart for God if the consequences for your sins were removed? Would that still keep you from sinning? Is your love for Jesus strong enough? Do you love Jesus more than your sin? I think we live in a world today where people come to church and they go through the motions But the truth is, they're on that rooftop, and they're looking. Your hearts are straying after sin. Robert Robinson wrote a hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. These words echo in my mind all the time. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I wonder if your heart's been wandering lately. How close are you to the one who loved you and gave himself for you? Can you sing this verse? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. That's what this altar is for. To come and confess your sins and to ask for God's grace to bind your wandering heart to him. Remember the phrase, lick the earth? It's a a dirty phrase. It's a gross-sounding phrase. But when you have given in to sin, that's exactly what you're doing. 
This morning as I was thinking about that and thinking about that phrase, lick the earth, Psalm 2.12 came to my mind. Instead of licking the earth, you must kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here are the choices, dear brothers and sisters. You're either going to lick the earth, or right now as we have this invitation, you're going to kiss the sun, embrace Jesus, and be saved. Those are your choices. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.